I want to just uh, begin by sharing one of my biggest challenges from the whole time I was in grade school, kind of elementary school, middle school. Um, we all had different things that we faced at those times where we're kind of learning what does it mean to be in school, what does it mean to be a student. One of my challenges uh, was two very simple words, and my teachers were so nice to write these words in big red letters on my homework assignments, my tests, and my quizzes. Two words, follow directions. Follow directions. And I'll be honest, to this day, I still think about that. And what I mean by that is, when I would get an assignment or something, it wasn't often the case that I found something that really stumped me. My problem was, as I would read it, I would think I understood what I needed to do, and I would just start figuring it out, and I would start answering the question or doing my math problem or whatever. But I would be in such a hurry that I would miss something key in the prompt. I would miss something about what they were asking me to do, like in math class, like, please show your work. That was a real trick for me. I had a really hard time remembering to do that. Part of the reason I mention this now is I'm starting to see this in my son, too, my oldest, and I go, there's no way this is genetic. Like, I'm still doing this. I am still, like, teaching him inadvertently, like, to hurry through things, to kind of favor speed over accuracy. And I think that's a challenge for us here on the east side. Like, I'm not the only one in the room who has trouble following directions. I'm not the only one who has a challenge with this particular problem to slow down. Some of you see this and you cringe. Because in your work life, in your parenting, in all the things around you, you just go, oh, I stink at slowing down. That is not something that I want to do. I can't believe I came to church this morning to hear this guy tell me to slow down. But I honestly believe it is one of the most important steps disciples of Jesus need to take. Our whole world needs to take this, but I'm speaking specifically here this morning to those of us who belong to a local church who have said yes to following Jesus Christ, because what we're talking about in this sermon series are kind of our three values, our primary ends or goals as a church, gather, grow, and go. These are not unique to us. Other churches share these values. But the way that we express these uniquely here in our community, at Bethany Community Church, is going to look different. Last week we talked about gathering, why it's important to be together for worship. We looked at Jesus' teaching in John chapter 7 on the rivers of living water, how being with him, being in community with other people, gathered around Jesus, physically present with one another, is so valuable. And so today we're talking about what it means to grow. And really, the simplest definition I can give us for what we say, what we mean when we say grow is becoming more like Jesus, being increasingly transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. That's it. But that's not easy to do. Otherwise, we would have all figured out how to do it, right? And I think this is a missing element from most of our approaches to discipleship. It certainly has been for mine. Almost every part of your life is built around some concept of time. And I've shared this with you guys before. My concept of time over this summer, over my time on sabbatical, was radically transformed. And this message was something that God was just trumpeting into my life. And so, with kindness, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, slow down. Go ahead, slow down. It's okay to slow down. And what I hope to do this morning is honestly to have us hear from Jesus those very words that you just spoke to each other. Slow down. Slow down. It's good to slow down. How are we going to do this? We're going to look at a couple of different headings from today's text. First one is Jesus' heart. That's part one. Part two is resisting the tyranny of the urgent, not my term, another term. 
Part three is slowing down, and part four is an opportunity to reflect. I'll begin by offering us a question that we'll come back to at the end. What is one step you know you could take to slow down? Just one. One thing that you could add or even take away to help you slow down in some part of your life. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to slow down. He models it for them. So we're going to look at the text that Joe read for us with an eye toward how can we learn how to slow down. Let's look at this and kind of set it in its proper context. Where are we? What are we doing here? We're in John's Gospel. Last week we talked about how John 6 and John 7 are filled with conflict. These are the chapters where Jesus is more and more pronounced in his revealing of who he is as Messiah. And there's a group of people that are thrilled about that, and there's a group of people that are not happy about that. Jesus is in conflict, and yet he's continuing to teach, as he taught us last week, to come to him. The rivers of living water flow from him and into the life of people who follow him. This is in the context of the Festival of Booths, a high holy season, a big celebratory party for the people of Israel, and Jesus is in the midst of that. So that party is wrapping up. Everyone's going home. They're picking up all the trash and the empty red Solo cups. They're putting them in garbage bags, and they're heading back home. And we catch up to Jesus right here at the end of chapter 7. Then each of them went home, each of you, each of me, if we'd come to this festival. Festival's over. Time to go home now. You can't stay at Woodstock forever. While Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, this is a seemingly innocuous statement, right? Like, what's, what's specific here? This latter portion of the sentence, after the comma, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This was not a one-time thing. If you've read any of the Gospel accounts, you know that there's this pattern, this, this rhythm that Jesus steps into over and over again, where he's with people and then he's not with people. He's healing and performing miracles and ministering to the poor and the marginalized, and then he steps away. The image that I have in my mind is like, you've had a really great meal, you're very satisfied, and you kind of push back from the table. You're done for a little while, okay? You're, you're, You're done until the next meal comes. This is a regular pattern for Jesus. And the question we might want to kind of use our imaginations around this morning is, what's he doing He went to the Mount of Olives. It doesn't say what he was doing up there. My theory is it's not actually very complicated what he's doing. He's meeting with God the Father. Remember, in other parts of his Gospel accounts, he's saying, the Father and I are one. The Father and I share the same heart. Well, you can't really make that claim if you don't know who you're talking about. If you're married and you say, yeah, my spouse and I are in alignment around around this decision or around our parenting or whatever, you better be saying that out of an understanding of what that person gets and who they are and that, say, that shared value, whatever it may be. Similarly, Jesus is saying here he is enacting a value of going before the Father to be by himself, to not have other people vying for his attention, to have a singular focus on who God is and how God is shaping his heart. Think about it this way. Jesus is fully God and fully human. His heart in alignment with the Father, if he's human, is kind of always being tugged away from that. And in his divinity, he's never going to deviate from that in such a way that breaks us or him. But he needs this rhythm and this cadence to be with the Father, to be able to make these claims. It begs the question, if his heart is being shaped by going up on the Mount of Olives and having time away, how is your heart being shaped? 
What are you doing regularly that is conditioning, changing, moving, formulating you toward a certain end? I heard recently this week that uh, we live in an age of attention. So remember, we had sort of the mechanical age, and then we had the information age. Now we live in an age of attention. Large companies are vying for your attention and my attention all the time. That glowing rectangle that you have in your pocket is designed to direct your attention one way. Not toward the world around you, but back toward that glowing rectangle. We live in an age of relentless competition for our attention. So think about it this way. When you get up in the morning, after coffee, of course, you got to have coffee first. What's the first thing you read or watch or listen to? When you turn on the radio in your car, which station is coming on? What words or perspectives are inundating you? We have more attention to this now in our kind of modern discourse around media and consumption than we ever have, so I don't need to belabor all the different salient points around that. But if you watch one cable news network, you will hear certain terms, and if you watch a different cable news network, you will never hear those terms. You will hear things like election integrity on one station, and you will hear things like voter suppression on another station. I'm not advocating either position, I'm just naming a dichotomy. Jesus' model is to have the first voice be the Father's voice, the strongest voice, the clearest voice. It's not your cable news network, it's not your app, it's not your social media, it's not whatever YouTube channel you happen to be into this week. All those things are all fine and good to a degree, but the step that Jesus takes that we must emulate if we are followers of Jesus Christ is to give primacy to the voice of the Father. A very basic way that I struggle to do this uh, until recently, we got a physical newspaper every day of the week. Like, we're kind of old-fashioned. Newspapers, sorry, they're um, paper with the news on them. (laughs) And for a variety of reasons, we're just going to get Sunday papers now and kind of do digital or whatever. But it's hard for me when the newspaper lands on my front porch to not read that first. I want to read my scripture first. I want to read the Bible first. I want to spend time with the Lord first. But man, the baseball scores are right there. How the Huskies did last night against Michigan State, it's right there. I would really like to know. But it's a conscious decision. I'm not saying I do this perfectly to say, you know what, the paper will wait. I want to go and be with the Lord. That's one step, one step that I in my life have chosen to do. Again, not saying this happens every single day, but what is one step you could take to give that primacy of attention not to the paper, not to your preferred cable news network, not to talk radio, not to social media, but to God the Father? How would you do that? What's one step you could take? What's one way that you, like Jesus, could move your heart closer to alignment with the Father's heart? One of the things that drives us away from this is the tyranny of the urgent. That's a phrase that I'm borrowing from an author named Charles Hummel. He wrote a book called The Tyranny of the Urgent. He's a time management author. So I took his definition of it for our next section, and I kind of tweaked it a little bit. When, the way we define the tyranny of the urgent is this, and we'll talk about where it is in the text. When we react to tasks or stimulus which feel urgent, but maybe aren't that important. Remember Stephen Covey, the four quadrants, urgent versus important? Those tasks become tyrants in our lives and keep us from being the people that God has called us to be. 
The tyranny of the urgent. When you open up your email and you feel your heart rate start to go up because you're worried about what's going to be coming through. You're worried about an update on someone that you love who's sick. You're worried about your boss giving you yet another thing to do. That is something that has become a tyrant in your life. I have lived through that. Have you? Have you experienced that? I'm not kidding. I used to open up my email and my heart, I could feel my heart rate go up. Has that happened to you? Because that's become a tyrant in your life. Tyrants can look like really good things. A tyrant can be your kid's soccer team. A tyrant can be your path toward career success. A tyrant can be getting your board certification as attorney or a doctor so that you can have that status and have that prestige. We all have our tyrants. Where do we see this in the text? Well, I'll walk through it really quickly. I won't have it up on the screen, but if you want to open up your Bibles, you can follow along with me. In John chapter 8, verse 2, Jesus is doing what he loves maybe the most, and that is to teach and to shepherd and to care for people. He is instructing them out of the overflow of his heart. He is a golden retriever chasing a frisbee. He is having the time of his life teaching these people about the kingdom of God and the grace of God and the justice of God. And maybe you can relate to this. When you get the chance to do what you were made to do, to parent, to study, to heal people, to work on computers. When you have this gift and this calling and you get to live into it, man, isn't it so good? It's so sweet when you have the chance to do what God made you to do. That's what Jesus is doing. And it is so hard when you're interrupted from that. It's so hard when someone or something sort of yanks you off the trajectory. Like, wait, no, I'm, I'm doing my favorite thing. You're telling me I have to go do something else right now? That's what's happening to Jesus in verse 3. His enemies bring a woman in front of him We never learn her name. But she is accused of adultery. And in that time, this trial that they are attempting to do actually was against the law. The trial that they should have done according to the law of Moses would have been before priests and it would have brought the man, not just the woman, in front of this group of people. This was very much a show trial meant to trap Jesus. But it's interrupting him. And then here comes the tyranny of the urgent. This is verses 4 and 5. Listen to this. The serious ones, that's what uh, Bible commentator Dale Bruner calls the Pharisees. I love that. Like, you're so serious. You serious people. The serious ones said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now. Right now. What do you say, Jesus? Jesus, we need you to rule on this. Jesus, we needed your commentary on this document a week ago. Jesus, did you not see the email? Jesus, why aren't you replying to my text messages? Hurry up. The opposite of slowing down. Hurry up, Jesus. Can I just offer a word of encouragement? Be very careful when a crowd tells you to hurry up. Be very careful when a mob tells you to hurry up. You are not going to make your best decisions under those circumstances. When are you most susceptible to having the mob tell you what to do? When are you most vulnerable to the tyranny of the urgent? I had to reflect on this for a little while. Often it's when I'm alone, when I'm not around people, When I don't have the opportunity to 
interact with a colleague or you know, be out somewhere where there's a little bit more distractions. Often when I'm working alone, when I'm just here in my office or I'm kind of in a place of solitude and I'm connected to the internet and I'm seeing things coming across my screen, that is when I am most susceptible to kind of going, ooh, I better react to that, ooh, I better go this way, ooh, I better have that. The phone, don't even get me started on the phone. When are you most susceptible to the tyranny of the urgent? And what do you want to do about it? What do you want to do about it? A change I made in my life recently, again, I'm not saying I'm doing this perfectly, I'm giving examples that hopefully inspire, is that when I study, Tuesdays are my study day where I spend the whole day in the scriptures, where I'm working on these messages, where I am humbled to have the opportunity to do that. On Tuesdays, when I'm here at the church, I put my phone in my office and then I go down to my study and I don't look at my phone. Okay, what if your family needs you? What if something's going on? Well, it'll be okay. It'll be all right. What's one change that you could make to sort of sidestep the tyranny of the urgent? Because man, with my phone there with me, I am looking at it, I am distracted, but without it, it's a glorious opportunity to fully give myself to the work that God has given me to do. What is one step that you can take to say no, like Jesus did, to the tyranny of the urgent? Do you see Jesus getting flummoxed in this moment? Do you see him kind of getting worked up over the crowd barking at him to make a decision? No. What does he do? What is, what is his action? Someone call it out. How does he physically respond to their demands? What does he do? He's down. He doesn't stay put. He tells them with his actions, I'm not playing your game. I'm not. That takes courage. That takes fortitude. That takes a heart that is more interested in what the Father is doing than what those people are yelling at Him to do. Now, I'm going to ask us to use our imaginations to conceive of something that is uncomfortable to me, and it may be uncomfortable to you as well. I want you to imagine a scenario where Jesus made a different decision. The woman's been brought before him. She's completely helpless, especially in a patriarchal society. She's probably half-clothed. She's embarrassed. There's an angry group of men around her. This is an ugly situation. Now, the scenario I want you to imagine is Jesus is standing there teaching. This woman falls in front of him, is thrown violently to the ground in front of him. And he doesn't stop teaching. He just, if she's here, he sees her land in the dust, and he just looks past her. Or he stops his teaching for a moment and just kind of scoots her out of the way, gets back to teaching. What an awful scenario! How horrendous. Thank God that's not what happened, but what if it was? We would not, <laughs> we would not have the same faith. Faith in Jesus Christ would look very different if that's how he treated this woman in this situation. It would be antithetical to the gospel to look past the poor and the marginalized to see a situation that you can help. 
and to not be willing to change your pattern or your path or to step away from your comfort. How awful. Church, can I just admit to you guys, I do that every day. I do. I see people who may be in need. I read about opportunities for prayer. I have conversations with people who are really hurting. And in not very great moments in my life, I just keep going. I drive past the person who's asking for help on the side of the street. I walk past someone who's asking for a handout. I hear in a conversation with a neighbor a cry for for truth or for help or for just someone to listen to them, and I'm so committed to whatever the next thing is that I'm doing that I don't slow down. My contention is that the heart of Jesus was so formed by his Father that it was impossible for him not to slow down and to help this woman. But by comparison, my heart has a long way to go. How about yours? We can't help everybody. We can't stop every single time. I totally get that. But I want us to feel this this pinch, this little twinge of, but we could. But we could. If our hearts were a little bit formed like Jesus. I am not advocating for moral perfection. I am advocating for a gravitational pull in your heart and my heart toward people like this woman caught in adultery. Who we might not want to associate with who we might be afraid to talk to, who we would kind of go, oof, I don't know, mm-mm. Whoever that may be for you. Jesus stepped back from his priority, his work, if you will, of teaching. He got perspective through his time with the Father that then played into this very moment when he was on point. When the chips were down, he slowed down. He put aside his comfort, his feeling of of teaching people who are listening with rapt attention. Man, as a teacher, that's an amazing feeling. But boy, did Jesus just put that to the side and serve the woman in front of him. Would you? Would I? Would we? I'm convicted that as a church and as a leader in our church, There is very little that I could point to other than sort of informal, occasional things that we as a congregation have done to bless and serve the poor in the time that I've been here. It is a failing. We must do better. We must see the people right around us who need our help. We must see the people in our midst who need our help. That's why I want to encourage you, take care of Garrett and Michelle White. They're going through something rough right now, and we as a congregation can help them. The question to ask in reflection is this, what keeps you, what keeps me from doing what Jesus did and stopping and seeing that woman right in front of him? I mean, I know mine. I want to be comfortable. I want to keep moving. I don't have time for this. What would be yours? You might have the same list. You might have a different list. When your comfort is getting disturbed, pay attention. When your comfort is being disturbed, pay attention. Maybe God is at work in that moment. He certainly was in this moment with Jesus. Now I want to wrap up and give us a couple of things to consider in reflection. 
Jesus rescues this woman, that terrible what-if scenario that I just proposed to us, that doesn't happen. He rescues her, he saves her life, he gives her a new mandate, go and sin no more. Oh, that is the gospel. He is rescuing her from a life of brokenness and saying, you, you can do much better than this, my child. God has so much more for you. How do you think that woman treated other people after her interaction with Jesus? What was her life like after she'd been rescued? After she'd literally faced death? There were men holding stones and they were ready to throw them. And then they dropped the stones one by one. The sound of stones falling into the sand and men's footsteps kind of walking away. That is the sound of this rescue in this moment. Her life was forever different. And every one of us who proclaims faith in Jesus Christ, we are called to reflect and respond similarly. I don't know how she responded, but I bet you it was really good. And she treated other people with the dignity and respect that Jesus afforded her. My heart's desire for us as a church is to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ like I hope and I think this woman did. By living differently. By not being okay with continuing to perpetuate our own cycles of comfort. By leaning into conversations when the opportunity presents itself. Many of you will remember this spring... We were all affected by an event in Uvalde, Texas, a shooting at a school at Robb Elementary. It was awful. I'm from Texas, so I felt that pain very precisely. But I'll tell you what happened. After that shooting, and I talked to a bunch of you about this, all of us, I think, in different ways, had opportunities to have conversations with people outside of the church about evil, death, pain, suffering, that that awful event forced into the forefront of our conversations. I remember talking with parents of kids on my son's baseball team, people that I knew sort of at a tertiary level, if you will, but that shooting, as awful as it was, did become a vehicle for having conversations about faith and about purpose. Will we be the kind of people who rise to those occasions? Will we be the folks who come in, not with answers? I wasn't there to answer things for people. I was simply there to say, pain is real. There is evil in the world. And in Jesus Christ, we have the best response to this. And he is our comfort, and he is our strength. Not every tragedy needs to be just seen through the lens of an opportunity. There's much more angles to that. Don't hear me oversimplifying that. But hear this, church. If we do not lean into those difficult conversations when the opportunity presents it, we're missing it. We're missing it. It'd be like if Jesus said to the woman that he rescued, that he saved her life. What if he didn't say anything to her? What if he just let her go back to this horrible cycle that she was in? Well, then he didn't really care about her life, did he? Yeah, okay, he rescued you, but, you know, you're fine, whatever. No, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of walking through our culture and our world and seeing things that are clearly wrong and not being willing to have a gracious but clear conversation about it and go, look, Jesus has a different way. You don't have to live like this anymore. 
Take your pick. Ignorance to racism, a recreational sexual ethic. There are all kinds of things going on around us that followers of Jesus Christ can step into with grace, with civility, with charity, and, and that allows our comfort to die just a little bit. Just a little bit. If you slow down and absorb and listen to what people are saying around you, your comfort will die just a little bit. And it should. And so should mine. I want to give us the opportunity to reflect on what's been said today, but before we do, I want to frame this kind of closing thought with a quote from Matthew Henry. He was an English minister. He wrote some amazing Bible commentaries in the 1600s, and he said this about today's passage. Jesus aimed to bring not only the prisoner to repentance, the woman, by showing her his mercy, but the prosecutors too, by showing them their sins. They sought to ensnare him. They set a trap, remember. He sought to convince and convert them. Our culture seeks to ensnare us in cycles of endless attention-grabbing and distraction. We're not going to play those games anymore, Bethany. We are going to seek to convince and convert and to minister to and to be alongside of those folks that we love who are in each of our lives, our colleagues, our neighbors, our family members. And I invite you to consider the opportunity that Jesus is putting in front of you right now to change one step in your life through these questions of reflection. You're going to have time to reflect on these on your own. And then because we have time to, we'll have a moment to kind of share in some groups in just a second. So there are note cards, I believe, in the pew racks in front of you, those little uh, carriers that have the uh, Bibles and the hymnals in there. There should be a couple of things in there. There's also paper in the back. I just want to encourage you. These are different than the reflection questions in your bulletin. Pick one or two of these, and we're just going to give you a few minutes to be quiet and reflect on it. Question one, what's one step, just one, that I could take to slow down? What's one step I could take to give more attention to God? Remember Jesus going up on the Mount of Olives? He wasn't doing that because he was bored. He was doing that to give attention to God. What's one step you could take? When am I most susceptible to the tyranny of the urgent? When, do, when does that most get its claws into you? And how can you tell it no? I'm not going to play that game. Final question, maybe the hardest question. How, can I, how might I see and help the lost? Not having someone laying in front of you bloodied and battered and embarrassed and then looking past them, but looking at them and choosing to move toward them at great cost. These are the questions I would encourage you to reflect on. I will keep an eye on our time. We'll have a couple of minutes just to breathe and sit and saturate in this, and then I'll call us into discussion. One of the things that we've found in our church community that has really helped over the last couple of years is giving us time to think and giving us time to respond. And so in a moment, I'll encourage you to turn your chairs and to get into groups of no more than five, Share as you are led. I would encourage you to lean into that discomfort and share as vulnerably as you would like. If you are new, you are more than welcome to say, hey, I'm new, I just want to listen. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy you guys do this. But we just want to recognize that for not everyone, this feels like the proper step. And you're invited to share your answer to one of these questions in your discussion group. Share your name. Share one answer. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we want to give these moments where we can just be quiet and be before you. 
back to you. It's a gift. You gave the woman caught in adultery the gift, not only of life, but of a new purpose. You called her out of a broken cycle, and you call us out of it too. You call us out of our comfort, out of our locked into this tyranny of the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Lord, help us. Have mercy on us. In these moments, would you lift up for us some thoughts and some perspective that we really need so that we might be the people who most desire to look like you and to have our hearts be shaped by you. Slow us down, Lord. And use this time for your glory, we ask in your name. Amen. Again, I'll keep an eye on our time and I'll call us back together again in a few moments.